You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Um, so I, I um, and, and that, that, whole, that whole doxology at the end of Romans 11, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, his ways are inscrutable, his paths are, are untraceable. I mean, this is a, a profoundly beautiful hymn um, at the end of, really some very thick Pauline logic there in Romans 9 to 11. Um, and I'll, I'll mention this, you know, in the sermon on Tuesday, but just, just because I'm thinking about it with William Cooper, um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a kind of hymn that you, I think of in terms of, t- of timpanies and trumpets. You know, it's that, got that kind of bravado to it. Um, but if you go back to the beginning of Romans 9, you, you see the Apostle Paul actually kind of weeping throughout all of Romans 9, 10, and 11. He's... He's heartbroken that his his own people, according to the flesh, have not turned to, to Jesus in mass, and he's trying to sort through that theologically and providentially. And where does where does he end up? He ends up at the end of it all by saying, um, "I know that God will be faithful to His call on His people. I know that He will draw in the Gentiles to Himself as He is even now." And then you want to say, "Well, Paul, how's all that going to happen?" And Paul's answer is, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. It's a, it's a wonderful affirmation of the, of the profundity of God's own knowledge and his providential care over creation to bring it to its end. William Cooper's hymns um, are riddled with this theology of providence from beginning to end because William Cooper struggled with depression, um, actually tried to commit suicide four times. Um, he was converted in an insane asylum while he was recovering from his first episode. Um, so when you start to read some of these Cooper hymns like God Moves in Mysterious Ways to Perform, behind a frowning providence, there, it, there hides a smiling face. Um, there's another one. It's 667 in our hymnal. I won't tell you when I discovered that this morning, but I'll just, it's there. Um, uh, it's another just wonderfully beautiful um, hymn that's an affirmation of, of Cooper's own trust in God's providence, even though in his current moment, all he could see was the clouds of his own of his own despair. And and I I, I know I'm off the script, but I wanted I just had to read this to you because I thought it was so beautiful. This this, this section right here about um, Cooper describing his own conversion in uh, in an insane asylum, and this this is what it, what it says here. Um, he kept saying, if, if I could only be sure about his own salvation, he kept saying over and over in the insane asylum, I'm damned, I'm damned, I'm damned. And friends found a retreat for Cooper in the Collegium in, in Saniorum run by the evangelical Dr. Nathan Cotton at St. Albans. Here at first, he spent day after day repeating, I'm damned, I'm damned. And one day, Cooper found a Bible lying on a bench in the asylum's garden. He opened it and found himself reading of how Lazarus rose from the dead. And hope began to grow in him on seeing so much benevolence and mercy and goodness and sympathy with miserable man in our Savior's conduct. The poet tells us that after this experience, his heart was softened, but it was not yet enlightened. Sometime later, he's still in the, in the, in the Saniorum, Cooper picked up a Bible again and read Romans 3.25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. On reading this, Cooper states that his chains fell off 
And here, here's a quote from Cooper. Immediately I received the strength to believe in the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement He had made, my pardon sealed in His blood, and all the fullness and completeness of, of His justification. In a moment I believed, and I received the gospel. That's really kind of beautiful. Um, Cooper was a was a brilliant man, but that but wh- why I I think this is so encouraging is that wasn't the end of his struggles. That was number one of four significant bouts that he had with depression. And the theme that he returns to again and again is looking beyond himself to a future hope that God would eventually make all things good and new. And that does have to do with what we're, the name that we're dealing with this morning, which is. Uh, Jesus. I was walking with Chris and Padilla on the way, and she's like, so what name are you doing today? I said, Jesus. We're going to do Jesus today. Um, because here we have this, a name that's revealed to us that's really not a unique name by any stretch of the imagination, and especially in the first century world, but it's significant, um, it's significant in Matthew's gospel, especially because the name Jesus is explained for us. And if you have Bibles, let's look at Matthew 1 together. And this is the the infancy narrative. Our time's going to fly today. Um, Now, here's what you have in Matthew 1.18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Um, And her husband Joseph, being a just man... Oh, we could talk about this for a second. Um, I I actually probably would prefer translating this. um, And her husband, Joseph, although he was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. In other words, there was a kind of moral obligation on Joseph as a righteous man finding out that his wife was pregnant before marriage the burden was kind of on him morally to put her away. But he wouldn't do that. It's kind of remarkable. So even though he was a just and righteous man, he was unwilling to put her to shame. He resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And here we, here we have verse 21. And she will name, bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Um, and the name Jesus here is a name that you're quite familiar with from the Old Testament, um, Yeshua. Um, a lot of times you will hear that name translated uh, Joshua, right? So the name Yeshua and the name Joshua um, that we find in the Old Testament, say with the figure Joshua who comes right after Moses, is built around this this Hebrew slash Aramaic term, which means deliverance. Uh, and and here you have the angel describing for Joseph the significance of naming this figure who's coming into the world as Jesus, not in a kind of abstract notion of deliverance, but a particular understanding of what deliverance is here, because he will deliver his people from their sins. Now that's really important, because when you think, and we're going to come here to the Emmanuel passage in a second, but when you think about the name of Jesus as revealed in the New Testament, 
His name is such that indicates what His purpose and mission is in the world. And we've seen this through this whole series, that the, the name that's attached to, the, to God Himself that He gives in His own self-unveiling and revealing reveals the character of His mission and His ways and His identity. Who, who are you? I'm the one who will be who will be. I'm the one who will be with you in these, and we're coming back to this, but I will be with you in the redemptive moments that you're about to experience um, in the sands of the Egyptian desert. You're going to see me be who I'm going to be. And here we have, in the New Testament, Jesus being revealed as the one who's coming to deliver His people from their sins. And His name itself reveals what He's about and what's central to His mission, what the kingdom of God that He's announcing is all about. So when you think about the balance of the Old and the New Testament as they relate to one another, there are two signal events that we find in the Old Testament and the New Testament that are really in mirror relation the one to the other. Um, in fact, uh, Robert Jensen, an American theologian, uh, had a sort of nice turn of phrase where he said, the God of the Bible is the God who raised Israel from the dead in the Old Testament in Egypt. So think the Exodus. And he's the self-same God in the New Testament that raises Jesus from the dead. So this character of God is the one who takes those who are in a, in, in a state of deadness and gives them life frames for us these two massive redemptive moments, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because, And you, you've, you've all have spent enough time in the Psalms to know that when the psalmist needs to encourage um, broken and lost, disoriented believers in the community of faith in the current moment, more often than not, the psalmist is going to rehearse what God has done in the past. And when he rehearses what God has done in the past, more often than not, it has to do with the Exodus. Um, think Psalm 77, right? When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. I, I love that. I mean, what a, what a great description of the splitting of the Red Sea, right? And why, are, why is the psalmist going back again and again to, the, to, 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 to these moments, this, this Exodus moment? To encourage God's people in their current ex- moment of suffering or disorientation, in the hopes and confidence that what God has done in the past, He will yet again do in in the future. Uh, So when we come to the name of Jesus, we see that Jesus' name is wrapped up in this redemptive context, just like the name Yahweh or Jehovah is wrapped up in a redemptive context in the Old Testament as well. What does the name Jehovah mean? It means that God gives Himself to His people in covenant relationship to redeem them, and to rescue them from their from their bondage. That that's who your God is. That's how, if I can put this in a kind of indelicate way, that's how we're able to pick him out of a lineup of competing gods and say that's ours, because he's acting according to his character. He's acting in accord with his name. He takes us. He takes his people who are dead and he brings them to life again. He takes those who are in bondage to their sin and he brings liberation. There's a reason why, and, I, and I, if my memory serves me correctly, I think it's the only place where we see Jesus actually read a text in the synagogue and then preach on it. There's Jesus in Luke chapter 4 opening Isaiah 61 and, and reading the, I guess we would call this the Haftorot reading of the day, so the, the, the proverb reading of the day, I mean the, the, the prophet reading of the day, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he's, a, he's, a, he's commissioned me to announce 
the good news to the poor and to and sight to those who are blind. It's Isaiah 61. It's a messianic text. Um, it's a deliverance text. It's those who are blind, they need their eyes to be opened. And if you've spent time in Isaiah, you know that that theme of blindness and then the opening of the eyes to see is a theme that runs throughout the whole book that kind of holds it together that, that tells us something about the judgment of God and His eventual redemption and salvation. Isaiah chapter 6, you remember this, is the, this was that scene that was bad news for Isaiah. He signs on the dotted line, I'll go and be your prophet. I'll be the one to bring your word to them. What is it exactly you want me to say? Well, this is what I want you to say, Isaiah. Go and preach the word to them, and your words will be the means by which I deafen their ears and I blind their eyes. And then you remember what Isaiah's response to that is? How long, O oh Lord? Right? How long is that ministry going to last? And he's like, well, until everything's kind of destroyed, except for a little bit that will be left that I can work with, but it's, it's going to be really bad. Um, so Isaiah goes and does that. And then when we get to Isaiah 35 and then chapter 40 and then 41, what's this theme that appears again? God's building a highway. He's returning to his people and he's opening their eyes so that now they can see again. Um, so when, when Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61 and he's saying that the, the spirit is on me, I'm the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah. I'm the one who's coming to be the means by which those who are in bondage will be liberated and those who are blind can now see. He's all he's wrapping all of this up in this sort of Isianic promise about the future. And what's the promise? The promise is God's coming to redeem his people who are in bondage to their sin. It's a theme that we find in the Old Testament. It's present in the New as well. That God, by the act of His own kindness and mercy, can move toward His people in forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation without His people having done anything at all. No religious ritual, no sacrifice, no nothing. But God comes in as an act of His own determinative grace to show them that this covenant that I've made with you, this, 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 uh, this relationship that I've entered in with you, it's, it's not bilateral. At the end of the day, it really is unilateral. It's all on me. And I will, even in the face of your recalcitrance, I will see to the end that I make sure that my grace and my mercy toward you is dominant and triumphant. And that, that all those Old Testament themes are wrapped up in the significance of the name of Jesus as the one who will come to redeem us from our sins. He, he's the promise of God's kingdom and God's kingdom coming into time and to space brings along with it this messianic figure who is going to announce the good news and the good news itself is the news of, of liberation and restoration. So it's, I think it's interesting here because what you have right after the naming of Jesus in Matthew one twenty one is the reference back to Matthew uh, to Isaiah 7.14. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son... And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Um, Emmanuel, with us God, is the kind of literal translation. God is with us. So, so what are you seeing here in Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 and 22? You're seeing an understanding that Jesus' identity as a man born of Mary, 
and by the power of the Holy Spirit, but a full man, um, is also the very one who was promised in Isaiah to be God in our midst. Um, I'm always careful to, to kind of reduce Old Testament themes or theology to one big thing. There's multiple issues going on throughout the Bible that kind of resist a reduction down to a nice pithy statement. But if I were forced into a corner and someone said, all right, well, give me at least one big one in the Old Testament. The big theme, I think, would be the promise of God's presence in the midst of his people. I mean, it's centered around the tabernacle and the temple theology that's so present from beginning to end. The cloud and the fire by night. All of these are a demonstration that God is not a God who's far away, but He's promised to be with His people in their midst. To be with them. To be in relationship with them in their midst. And nothing is more dramatic in the history of God's dealing with His people than sending this little infant child into the world through Mary herself to be the very presence of God in our midst. God, he is the temple. He is, he is the tabernacle. All right. So, what we see here again is the saving context of the, of the name of Jesus. One other thing we're talking about is um, the name Christ. Right? So we have Jesus is, is, is particularly related to, to, to God's deliverance and salvation from our sins. It's the promise of God being in our very midst. God's presence is our redemption. God being with us is our hope. Um, think, think about that in terms of the ironic blessing. What is, what, where is grace to be found? Where is saving health to be found in terms of the ironic blessing? By being under the radiance of the very face of God in His presence. To be in the face of the, in the front of the smile of God is to be in, in that, in, in a saving location. And Jesus is, the, for lack of a better term, the big smile of God on His people to say, I mean, you, you have kicked, you know, you've kicked me in the goads from the beginning. But I'm not going to let your recalcitrance be determinative of what the outcome is here. I'm going to take, I'm going to take salvation in the language of Isaiah in accord with my own strong arm, and I will see to it to the end. And I'm going to do it by bringing my own self into your midst in this in this human being, it's 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 remarkable, right? But one, one other verse here. I want to. Well, I've got a lot of verses, and when I'm recognizing the time, but Mark chapter eight, verses twenty-seven through thirty. This is a scene we're all very familiar with. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, "Who?" Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others say, one of the prophets. Which, by the way, I mean, I think it's worth looking at all these appellations and saying all of those are rather remarkable. I mean, John the Baptist, he's kind of the pinnacle of the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. Um, Elijah, a prophet. There hadn't been a prophet for some time. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And when Peter says this, and this is a kind of interesting theme that you find throughout Mark's gospel, what some scholars have called the messianic secret. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. All right. Which is a tacit affirmation that what Peter just said was true. 
Um, but it needs to be revealed in the right time and in the proper order. You are the Christ, Christos. Now, of course, Jesus Christ, we use these terms as, as now sort of proper names. Um, but I think it's important to remember that this term Christ or Christos um, simply means the anointed one. And in the Old Testament, this term is the term that you, I think many of you will be familiar with, Mashiach, right? So Mashiach is translated, the Hebrew term Mashiach is translated into Greek as Christos, right? Which is where we get the term Christ, Jesus Christ. So the Mashiach is the anointed one. And in time, and, and by the way, Mashiach can be used in the Old Testament to describe multiple figures. Uh, David is obviously a Mashiach. Um, Josiah, uh, the king right before the Babylonian exile, is identified as a Mashiach, as, a, as an anointed one, a, a, a Messiah figure. Even Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, in Isaiah chapter 45, is identified as a Mashiach. Right. So, in, in some sense, the term Mashiach, it doesn't necessarily imply right out of the gate um, a kind of divine status. The Mashiach was the one who was going to come to bring about a couple of things. Number one, to establish the Davidic kingdom. Number two, to establish God's people ordered according to righteousness and justice. And the Mashiach would do so in the power of the Lord and in the, empower, the power of God's word and the empowering of God's spirit. But in time, especially in the time of Jesus, this term Mashiach had taken a higher level of significance. So much so that the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Messianic figure was understood in terms of many of these visions that Daniel had. And we don't have time to look at it, but especially the vision of da that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 7 where there's a son of man figure that's in the very throne room of the Almighty, of El Elyon. And the Almighty One gives to this Son of Man the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And He says that my kingdom is now your kingdom. Go and establish this kingdom and you will have rule over it forever. And so there is beginning to be sort of wrapped up in this Mashiach notion, something of a kind of a higher significance about a figure that would come um, a very special and unique figure in time who would come to establish God's kingdom in the midst of God's people. And this is something that we notice, don't we, in the preaching of Jesus? Jesus is, is pretty provocative about this. Well, what's, what's the nature of Jesus' early preaching ministry when he's right out of the gate in his public ministry? R Mark chapter 1. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. There was an understanding, especially in the time of Jesus, that the, the arrival of the kingdom of God would bring with it the arrival of this messianic figure. And when Jesus is announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God and is identified as the Mashiach, as the Christos, as the anointed one, he's making a really large claim. But we find as we move throughout the Gospels that Jesus' claim about being the Mashiach, the anointed one, and the one who would deliver his people from his sins, begins to take on a kind of significance in the narrative of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that really, I think, catches all of us by surprise. Um, th this is the kind of thing that I think Isaiah was saying in Isaiah chapter 48 when he says, all that you've learned before... You need to forget it 
Because God is about to do something so radically new in your midst that there's nothing that can prepare you for what He's about to do. The language that's bandied about in New Testament scholarship to describe this is apocalyptic. Now, we think in terms of redemptive history, God's moving in time. Um, think Galatians chapter 4. In the fullness of time, God revealed His Son. So we, we, it's, it's okay to think in temporal terms. But there's another vantage point as well that we need to come to terms with, and that's this apocalyptic character. God unveils something about the mystery of His own being and His ways with the world. Think the book of Colossians, for example. That, and, and in the unveiling, there is nothing that could have prepared us for what we're about to see. Isaiah lays the groundwork for this. Ezekiel lays the groundwork for this. We find the groundwork for this in, the, in, in Daniel as well. Um, there's, there's a kind of building anticipation at the end of the Old Testament. There's got to be more. There's got to be a priestly figure and a prophetic figure and a kingly figure that transcends the promises that we've seen already actualized. There must be more. And when God gives us that more in time, He does so in such a way that none of us could have been prepared for. And I would say this is, I think, at the core of the tensions that you find between Jesus and the Pharisees because time and again, the Pharisees are in effect saying, did you really just say that? Did you really mean that? Lord of the Sabbath? Raising a young girl from the dead? Um, going to the temple and basically defining yourself as the temple? I mean, do you realize how provocative that is? To say that you are the temple, I'm the temple, is to claim really a prerogative and a priority that's left to Israel's God alone. And Jesus and all these gospel narratives can, and this is remarkable, read their minds, that he gets what they're thinking. And here's the woman who comes in and sin, and he knows what they're thinking. And then Jesus just steps right on it, and he says, woman, I forgive you of your sins. And they get it. In other words, the Pharisees are really scandalized by all of this because they don't lack understanding. I'd say that. The Pharisees understand what Jesus is doing. Do you remember how they responded to that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who has the power in their hands to forgive sins? So that as you move through the gospel narratives and you raise the question, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? We know he's the one who's come to deliver us from our sins. We know, we know that He's the Mashiach. He's the, the anointed of God that's bringing the kingdom of God with Him. Or really, probably a better way of saying, saying that is, the kingdom of God brings the Mashiach with it. So that we see that happening, and He's embodying all of that. He's engaging all of that in His words and His actions. But there's more here. And the more bit is that Jesus is claiming to participate in the very identity of Jehovah. In other words, what Jesus is saying is you can no longer think about Jehovah, the, the, the revealed name of God that you find at the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3 and then throughout that book. You can no longer think of Jehovah without understanding my identity as wrapped up in the self-same identity of that, of that figure, of Israel's God. And that, that's the Isaiah 48 part. That's the part where everybody goes, we didn't see that coming. That God actually embodies, takes on a human body and enters into the world in a figure that's distinct from the Father and yet wrapped up in the self-same identity of the one who sent him. That's what's remarkable. And we're going to talk about this next week, but just so that you know now, all of this Trinitarian stuff that we're talking about, 
it's um, it's present in the Old Testament too. It's, it's, it's the, the groundwork is laid for it. Um, so Jesus describes himself in these terms that can only be understood at the end of the day as what? Jesus, by the very nature of his words and his actions, demands to be. He has to exist. He is the I am one. He is the one whose very existence gives life to existence itself, which makes the whole movement toward the cross scandalous and the resolution of it and the resurrection of the dead necessary. In other words, the very identity of Jesus as we follow him from beginning to end in the gospel narratives is that he must be. And the resurrection of the dead is the stamp on that. That he is Israel's God actually raised from the dead. And we don't have, what's our time? Yeah, we don't have time to talk about it, but I wanted you to, I was going to look at John 1. Um, I was, there's other, there's other texts as well, but the one that I'll give you as a homework assignment for next week is to look at 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Because there the Apostle Paul, and again, I don't know how else to describe this, but provocative. And a very provocative move interprets the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. And you shall love Him with all your heart, soul, and might. Um, you'll see the Apostle Paul there give the Shema and slide Jesus of Nazareth into the definition of what the Shema actually means now. Um, so I'll lay out, I'll, that's a little bait for you to come back for our final week. Um, and next week I think we'll do the Trinity and then, and then, and then we'll be done. Okay? Um, Lord bless us as we depart from here. Keep us in your grace. Thank you, O oh Jesus, for coming into the world to deliver us from our bondage. We, we, didn't, ha- we didn't have the keys, um, but you've been given the keys of, of both death and hell and heaven, and you have released us, and we're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.